Hey guys, how's it going? We're back! Yay! Finally getting this recorded. Yay, scheduling conflicts! Yeah, it's... As I said to my friend just now, uh, the struggle is very real. So real. Yeah. Also, we're recording on the ground today because we don't have our regular desk. It's... Thanks, Shelly. <laughs> Thanks. It was uh, borrowed for Thanksgiving, and we forgot to bring it home, so... <laughs> so that's why you should probably subscribe to us on Patreon, so we can afford to buy a table. That'd be great. That'd be, that'd be pretty afford sweet. Afford a lot of things. Sitting on the floors. I mean, it's cozy, but... Hey, this might end up working better. We might end up... The sound quality might be better. Who knows? Hopefully. At the very least, cozy. Pillows and blankets. And the shark onesie. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be photos on Instagram. You should probably watch for that. We we're... should probably build a pillow and blanket for it if we're going to keep recording on the ground. Okay. It'll probably help block out sound. Soundproofing um, at its finest. Yeah, so far. So we're just getting all of our humor out of the way. Uh, yeah. We were not joking when, I, when we said how grim this <laughs> topic is. I became physically ill researching this. Yeah, I knew that it was bad. I've obviously seen and read lots of things that suggest it's bad. But somehow, like, it doesn't really hit you until you're, like, writing notes and you're like, oh, boy, this is not great. Like, you just, it, it had a different effect on me than I kind of, like, I, I knew what to expect and yet it's still kind of the sheer, like, scale and gruesomeness kind of shocked me i guess still managed to rattle me even though i knew what to expect so we understand if people have to stop listening and yeah please 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 know that going forward this is really not going to be good this episode it's going to be bad it's going to be really ugly and probably kind of traumatic for a lot of people so pretty much right off the bat we talk about death so much death, death. and <gasps> in horrible ways and for stupid reasons with that, With that uh, in mind. welcome to Pan Historia. W welcome, yeah, welcome to Pan Historia for our new listeners. Uh, I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. Um, if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes on this subject, it would probably be helpful. Normally we don't have that requirement, but because these episodes are all tied together, it might be useful for some of the information in terms of the combatants and people involved. It's pretty complicated. So we recommend yeah. checking that out. And this is the most complicated of our episodes. Yeah, it's probably also the least chronological. Yeah, so, absolutely. Apologies for that. It's going to be a little harder to follow, but um, we'll do our very best. And uh, we think that posting maps and things on Facebook has been helpful, so we'll keep doing that to try and give people an idea of, of where these things took place. Having an idea of the geography probably would help. I guess with that, also remember... That we're on Facebook and Instagram, please follow us. Please. And uh, we'll pander more to you later. With that, <laughs> we're gonna jump into it. This this is the failure of humanity, which is the war in Bosnia. You'll find out why we called it the failure of humanity very quickly. Of course, as same with uh, last episodes, demographics is super important, especially in Bosnia, because unlike Slovenia. And Croatia, it wasn't as homogenous, the population. I mean, Slovenia, if you guys remember, Slovenia and Croatia had an overwhelming majority of their respective ethnic groups. None of the groups in Bosnia at the time 
were a majority. They, there was only a plurality. The largest ethnic group there at the time and to, still today is a group called the Bosniaks or also known as Muslims. But it's not appropriate to call them Muslims because not all Bosniaks are Muslims and not all Muslims are Bosniaks. Actually, I think the distinction was that the Muslims were Bosniaks and everybody else were Bosnians is kind of how that's like. I read that a lot of this discussing it. Okay, disregard. I don't know. That's just my, that was my like, my interpretation of how. Okay, because I, I heard that Bos not all Bosniaks were Muslims and not all Muslims were Bosniaks or something know. like that. Anyway, so the fir yeah, that's first, yeah. probably a fair assessment. <laughs> okay, first ethnic group, yeah, Bosniaks, they made up 43.5% of the population. This is the 1991 demographics, by the way. Then the Serbians population, they made up the second largest, which is 31.2%. Croats made up 17.4%. And then there's 5.5% who distinguished themselves as Yugoslav. So they could have been anybody. <laughs> and then the remaining 2.4% were a mixture of Montenegrin, Roma, Albanian and other religious wise. It's important to note, note how diverse the religious divide was in Bosnia. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any statistics from that time period, but just so you know, it was quite diverse between Muslims, Roman Catholics and Orthodox. So generally speaking, Bosniaks were Muslim, Serbs were Orthodox, and the Croatians and others were usually Catholic. Roman Catholic, a mix of Roman Catholic and Orthodox, and even some Muslims. There are also some very important entities that you're going to need to remember because this is how Bosnia is basically split. It's still split like this today. So the first entity is the Federation of Bosnia, and that mostly comprised of Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats, still does. Within that, there were two armed, there were more than two armed groups, but there's, these are the important ones. There's the Army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, or the ARB, IH, I'm just referring them to, referring to them as the ARB. And there's also the militia group, the Patriotic League. The, the second important entity was the Republika Srpska, or literally the Serb Republic. And it was, of course, overwhelmingly comprised of Bosnian Serbs. The important groups to know in these, in this area is the Army of Republika Srpska, also known as, as the Bosnian Serb Army, or as we're going to refer it as the VRS. There's also the Serb Volunteer Guard or the SDG. And then another entity was the Croatian Republic of Herceg Bosnia. And their group was known as the Croatian Defense Council or, or the CDC. And finally, I'm going to mention this, even though I don't believe either of us, I don't talk about it, at least. I don't think Lindsay does either. The Autonomous Republic of Western Bosnia was a very, it was a minor, but, and brief entity in the conflict. It doesn't exist anymore. A good ex way to explain the divide and the sudden divide in this is there's a quote from this woman named Lydia Fexa, who is an archaeologist living in Sarajevo. This is what she had to say, quote, I am a Croat. I was a Yugoslavian and now I am a Croat. I always knew that I am a Croat, 
but I didn't feel it so much. Now I have to be a Croat, Serb, Muslim, Jewish, or whatever. For me personally, these identities didn't interest me at all. My being a Croat was important, but now you have to be. End quote. This is the kind. This was the situation many people were thrusted in very suddenly when Yugoslavia collapsed. And as you'll find, uh, as we keep mentioning, and as we quickly find out, Bosnia was the worst of these conflicts. Yeah, I think that quote kind of says a lot about just like the nature of these conflicts being like pretty much purely nationalistic. And the problem with those types of conflicts is that that also brings into things like ethnicity and religion. And that makes conflicts just inherently nastier because it's significantly easier to hate your enemy. Like Jonah mentioned, Bosnia and all of the republics for that matter, like Serbia and Croatia and Slovenia were all the same. Yugoslavia as a whole was a really ethnically and religiously diverse place. Bosnia in particular was probably like one of the more diverse places. Um, Absolutely the most diverse. Yeah, which is I think also why it got the most bloody. If you, if you look at the regional region in which it's in, it's sandwiched between yeah. all of the main yeah. groups, and then you have their own groups so in between. You're essentially going to have everybody fighting on one piece of turf because it's in the middle. So beginning in 1991, when the, all these political upheavals in the Balkans were happening, they ended up displacing over 2.7 million people by the end of or by mid 1992. That's like the scale of this te- of, of these tensions starting to rise. And even though for the longest time, like that quote indicated, everybody lived pretty peacefully, when these conflicts, when especially when Croatia and Slovenia declared independence and war broke out between them and Serbia, ethnic and religious tensions started to really come to the fore. Bosnia also tried to secede, and Serbia, led by Slobodan Milosevic, was like, haha, no, and invaded Bosnia with the claim that they were there to, quote, free fellow Serbian Orthodox Christians living in Bosnia. Milosevic didn't even hide his aim going into Bosnia. His intention was never to keep Bosnia so much as to, like, make sure that the Christians were okay. The the Orthodox Christians, not all Christians. (laughs) And so starting in 92, Serbia set out to, quote, ethnically cleanse Bosnian territory by systematically removing removing all Bosnian Muslims from that territory. And along with ethnic Bosnian Serbs, Serbia attacked Bosniaks with former Yugoslavian military equipment and surrounded the city of Sarajevo. Jonah's going to talk about this a little bit more, but just like heads up, most Bosniaks were driven into concentration concentration camps where women and girls were gang raped and other civilians were tortured, starved, and murdered. Before we get into all that, we kind of, we really need to talk about the beginning of the war, how it sparked, and actually this continued complications around the beginning of the war. Branislav Yakvelik, I completely butchered that name, I apologize to you, if you are listening, and to any form, people living in the former Yugoslav republics, for butchering your name, he... Quoted, he has a good quote uh, to describe the Bosnian War, and this is going to help you guys understand why we talk about it the way we do. He said, quote, The Bosnian War was not a war of battles, but a prolonged, low-intensity conflict, end quote. And for the most part, yeah, he was correct. The only place that it really wasn't that way was in Sarajevo, which is why when I get to that, that's mostly what I'm going to be talking about. That's where most of the fighting was happening. Now, the first issue with Bosnia that people have today, there's a dispute as to what 
day the conflict actually began. Most scholars and people around the world today, they generally accept April 6th, 1992 as the beginning date. However, if you ask Serbian people, they consider March 1st as the day the conflict began. Now, what happened on March 1st is there is a Serbian wedding taking place in the capital of Sarajevo. And the guests were walking around carrying Serbian flags, which angered the local Bosniak slash Muslim population because it was in the middle of the Bosnian independence referendum. I'll get to that in a little bit. So as guests were walking from the wedding to the wedding dinner, because they didn't have vehicle transportation, they decided to just walk the 100 meters down the street. A Bosniak man shot and killed the groom's father. Father, his name was Nikola Garvodic. His flag was stolen and it was set on fire. On top of that, the presiding Orthodox priest was also wounded in the attack, but he survived. So this is why Serbians consider this to be the for the beginning of the conflict. And they also say Garvodic was the first casualty of the war, which I have some agreements there, but I'm just going to go with, for simplicity's sake, the beginning of the conflict was April 6th, 1992, just for our listeners. As mentioned before, Bosnia, they wanted to have the same success Macedonia have, in which, if you remember, Macedonia held an independence referendum. It was a huge voter turnout and overwhelmingly in support of leaving, and they left, and they're the only one of the republics to leave Yugoslavia peacefully during this time. Well, Bosnia was hope, hoping to have the same success and peaceful transition as men's Macedonia. The Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats, they overwhelmingly supported this referendum. Meanwhile, the Bosnian Serbs, they were not happy with this referendum and they decided to put on a full boycott of the referendum and they did not participate. Because of the diversity and the how isolated a lot of these areas in Bosnia are, Bosnia is a very mountainous and hilly country. They was held over two days between February 9th and March 1st, 1992. Now, because the Bosnian Serbs decided not to participate, of course, this is what happens when a group doesn't participate is it overwhelmingly it goes in favor of the vote you didn't want. And in this case, 99.71% of voters voted in favor of independence. And these are mostly comprised of Bosniaks, and Croatians. And like you hear in some referendums, they don't, even though it, it passes the vote, it doesn't succeed because it's, there's not enough voter turnout. Well, the voter turnout was 63.73%. So there's no real good argument to say that this referendum was not an accurate portrayal of the people's wishes. Clearly, most people in Bosnia wanted Bosnia to be free. In retaliation for not getting their way because they didn't vote, or most of them didn't vote. And despite the clear majority wanting to leave Yugoslavia, Belgrade began urging Bosnian Serbs and Serb forces to begin direct action against Bosnia. And Serb militia and Srpska began arming themselves with the help of Serbia. And important figures started popping up, which you will need to know now. The important figures we need to all remember, Elia Izbekovic, who is the president of Bosnia. Mate Boban, who is the president of Herzeg Bosnia, Radovan Karadzic, president of Srpska, 
and Ratko Mladic, Chief of Staff for the VRS. The last two people on here, I mean, all of them had their flaws, but the worst of the worst were the last two people on here. They were straight up fucking monsters. To put it this way, they were so monstrous that even Milosevic hated them. Yeah, and he's like the ultimate monster, so... Is he, though? After well, this... apparently not in comparison. Yeah, but I after mean, like, this war, I'm not so sure he's if he is. a fucking monster, and if he thinks they're monsters, then that's like saying something. Then you're, an, then you're not a human being. These people, to me, they're not human beings. They're devils. They're absolutely horrific people. Especially Mladic. If you look at picture of Mladic, it kind of fits because he kind of looks like an ogre. No offense to any ogres listening. <laughs> But he does. I, if you look at his picture, he just looks. These both these. I mean, Kardzic looks like a mad scientist with his hair, and then Mladic just looks. He looks evil, is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah. Now, right off the bat, things got really, really fucked up. In the north of the Republic of Srpska, because the way, if you look at the map, Republic Republika Srpska, it wraps basically around the whole border, almost the whole entire border of Bosnia. So borders with Serbia and to the east and Croatia to the north. So Serbs in Croatia, because you guys got to remember the Croatian War of Independence was still ongoing at this time. And this is the beginning of when Croatia spilt into Bosnia is there are border towns along on the Croatian Srpska border and Serbs were using Srpska as a um, as a stepping off point to regroup and resupply and then make attacks into Croatia of course the Croatians were not very happy with that one of the main places that they were that the Serbs were attempting to take was a place called Pazov Pasavina, and they would conduct heavy artillery bombardment from the Serbskin side. And there's also a massive Croatian, or there's a massive sniper campaign against Croatians in the Croatian communities in this town. So in retaliation on March 26, 1992, members of the Croatian Defense Forces, the Croatian Army, and with assistance from Bosnian forces, those three groups crossed the border into the town of Sejekovac, in Serbskin territory, the Serbs were systematically and indiscriminately murdered en masse by the attackers. Later, the Bosnian presidency and his council, I guess, they arrived later in 1992 and were immediately met with the decomposing bodies of 11 people. Serbska, they released a list of 47 people they said died. Later, when a forensics team entered into the town, they actually unearthed the a total of 58 people, 18 of whom were children. Unfortunately, it's hard to label this as a genocide. I mean, yes, they were targeting Serbs. It was a revenge killing in a sense. I'm not going to argue against the fact that it was probably a genocide, we, but we don't know. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not, because there is actually a difference between ethnic cleansing and genocide, technically. 
Like, Technically, yeah. So that's always been the thing with this conflict is the discussion about the difference between ethnic cleansing and genocide. And it feels like splitting hairs, but yeah. <laughs> Essentially what these people are doing was just trying to drive yeah. the Serbs out of this area so they can stop attacking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's up to you guys to decide. It is definitely a, a case of ethnic cleansing. Yeah, at the very least, I think. Everyone's agreed that everything that happened in these situations was, was at the very least ethnic cleansing, at the very worst genocide. Yeah, absolutely. As if it can't get any worse, there's also widespread reports from survivors of torture and rape committed by the Croat forces. I mean, ethnic cleansing and genocide is one thing, but using rape as a weapon is a whole different kind of evil. And that's definitely a theme of this conflict. Unfortunately. Now, in a completely other part of the country, there's a place called Bajaljana, and it is a town in Srpska near the border with Serbia. The difference between this town and a lot of the other areas in Srpska is this place had a huge Bosniak population. After Serbia announced its intention to aid Serb forces within Bosnia with the JNA, Yugoslav People's Army, for those of you who don't remember, Serb militiamen... In Beliana, they threw grenades into Bosniak-owned buildings and crowded cafes, killing many and wounding many more. So in response, Bo the Bosniaks formed what is known as the Patriotic League, and they began to retaliate, but unfortunately they were overwhelmed. So the Serb militia, they captured important structures within the town, and between April 1st and 2nd, the JNA surrounded the town under the guise of, quote, keeping the peace. The Serbian militias easily captured the town with the support of JNA and direct guidance from Milosevic himself, so he was giving them direct orders. Serb forces began immediately targeting Bosniak residents just for being Bosniak. They're subjecting them to beatings, torture, rape, and murder under the overall goal of creating a Serbian homogenous territory. So there is no... Absolute doubt that this was a case of ethnic cleansing. All the mosques in the town were destroyed, and the remaining Bosniak Muslim population was rounded up and forced into detention camps, which we will mention in a bit. Between 48 and 78 people were murdered. Beliano initially had 30,000 Bosniaks living within the municipality, but after the war had fewer than 2,700, as most of them were either killed or fled. More sickeningly, Serbs within the city today, they continue to celebrate April 1st as City Defense Day. So there's that. But, yep, there is that. <laughs> this brings us to the Siege of Sarajevo. A man named Kenny Tanemura said this about, he wrote a poem about it, and this is what he had to say, quote, How easily you could have been on the wrong side of the room, open to a sniper's view appearing through a scope illuminated by a titanium plate, or seen by a Chetnik in a tank on the hills surrounding Sarajevo. That's foreshadowing for how horrific this event was for the people within Sarajevo and people in Bosnia as a whole. This is the Battle of Bosnia. This is where most of the conflict took place. So Sarajevo, it's the capital of Bosnia. It's uh, completely surrounded by hills and, and mountains. 
It is a majority Bosniak panhandle surrounded by Srpska territory. And the 1991 demographics are as thusly, there's 50.45% Bosniak slash Muslim, 25.50% Serbian, 13.01% Yugoslav, and 6.70% Croatian, 4.32% other. Of the neighborhoods within Sarajevo, an area known as Stari Grad had the largest percent of Bosniaks, which was 77.66%, and the lowest was in Novo Sarajevo, 35.65%. But even in the lowest populated area, they still had the plurality. So it was a Bosniak city. And in the whole of the Sarajevo canton, so the basically the equivalent of a province, the Bosniaks held a plurality, but only just barely low of a majority, uh, with 49.23%. Following the wedding shooting, as mentioned earlier, the shooter was actually not arrested, and the State Security Administration of Yugoslavia, or SDS, accused the Bosnian government of orchestrating the attack and announced to Bos that Bosnian Serbs were in grave danger should Bosnian independence continue. The Patriotic League founder Sefer Halilovic countered with the idea that the wedding was nothing more than a, than Serbian provocation and was, wasn't an actual wedding. So you can see how both sides were kind of playing that card. You know, I think today we would call them false flags. Yeah. Alex Jones. Sorry. Uh, oh <laughs> So the following day, Serb militia and volunteers, they set up roadblocks and sniper nests surrounding Ser the Sarajevo parliament building in an attempted coup d'etat. However, thousands more citizens gathered together and went between the snipers and the parliament. And the snipers were not willing to fire on unarmed civilians. So they didn't do it. Nothing happened. The coup failed. Bosnia and Herzegovina formally declared independence from Yugoslavia on March 3rd, 1992, with sporadic fighting occurring between Serbs and Bosnian government forces across the country. On April 4th, Izbegovic ordered all military reservists and police in Sarajevo to mobilize, and the SDS begged Sarajevo's Serb population to evacuate, saying they were in grave danger. Which, to be fair, he was probably correct. On April 5th, ethnic Serb policemen attacked police stations and the training school in Sarajevo. Two police officers and one civilian were killed, and a state emergency was declared. Serb militia and volunteers once again began setting up barricades and sniper positions. In response, between 50,000 and 100,000 unarmed and peaceful protesters consisting of Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs, as well as various other ethnicities from around the area, marched through the streets, and their goal was for the removal of JNA and SDS forces from Bosnia, the barricades to be dismantled, and Bosnia to be recognized by Yugoslavia as independent. So these were people from every single ethnic group getting together to form a peaceful solution to this conflict. As protesters were moving across what was known as the Verbrana Bridge, a sniper opened fire on protesters, killing a Bosnian Croat named... Olga Sukic, and a Croatian-born woman named Sudia Diberovic. Couple Admira Izmic and Bosco Brikic, uh, Bosniak and Bosnian Serb, respectfully, they um, 
were also shot and injured, but they survived. And they are now today, if you guys are any fans of U2, uh, they wrote a song about these, this couple. They're actually known as the Romeo and Juliet of Sarajevo because of their ethnicities. In response, the Sarajevo police arrested six snipers, but they were forced to exchange them to save the police commander's life, who was a prisoner of the Serb militia at the time. Enraged at the, dis at the senseless killing of these protesters, the protesters stormed the parliament buildings and spoke with polit- They stormed the parliament buildings, but here's what's great. Instead of enacting their rage by beating the shit out of politicians there, they actually, all they did was force the politicians to stay in parliament and force them to speak on what, on what sort of peaceful end to the siege could, like what, they basically forced them to have a discussion on how to peacefully end the siege. You're going to hear a lot of beautiful moments in this horrific war. This is one of them. Like these are people who don't want to die. They don't want their city to be destroyed. They, and they could do they had so much rage in them because of what was happening. They're being killed indiscriminately and they still held back in order to come to a peaceful solution. On the same day, Bosnia was officially given international recognition, which set things back really far. And on the same day again, April 6th, this is April 6th, 1992, by the way, JNA forces began their bombardment of Sarajevo in retaliation for in their international recognition. And the next day, JNA forces crossed the Drina River and laid siege on the city, on the towns of Zvonik, Visegard, and Foka, all Muslim-majority cities within Srpska. You might be wondering where the UN... Yeah. Because we talked about the UN quite extensively. Yeah. So the UN's involvement in Bosnia was a little bit different than it was in Croatia. And we do talk about the UN in this episode, but like not nearly as much as we have in the Croatian episode, you'll know that, for a couple of reasons. But the first being like their mandate in Croatia was a lot bigger than it was in Bosnia for the most part anyway. But their mandate in Bosnia anyways was uh, a lot different than in Croatia. So the mandate for UN Prefor in Croatia was basically to oversee a, a ceasefire that had been arranged which kind of failed at Medak. But regardless, they were there to, to monitor a ceasefire that had been arranged. But in Bosnia, their mandate wasn't to monitor any pre-existing ceasefire because there wasn't. Their mandate was literally to keep the population of Bosnia alive until the war ended because they saw these massacres happening. And so they went to Bosnia to keep everybody from dying. So they had four phases of the war. The first phase was aid to Sarajevo. So beginning on June 5th, 1992, the UN was responsible for the further, or was responsible for the protection of Sar the Sarajevo airport as mandated by Resolution 758 for humanitarian purposes. The UN before would run a security corridor for, and, or for aid convoys between the airport and the city. And the second phase was the escort of humanitarian aid. So starting the 14th of September, 1992, UN Prefor was mandated by the UN Security Council to protect humanitarian relief convoys, as requested by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and provide ground transportation for difficult routes. So, like, essentially the UN worked with things like the Red Cross to try and keep them safe. And this happens in lots of conflicts that the UN is involved in, or at least has happened in lots of conflicts the UN is involved in. They work with the Red Cross to try and help keep humanitarian efforts 
alive and also keep those members safe, or as safe as possible. In 1993, the mandate was expanded again with UN Security Council Resolution 819, and this declared Srebrenica a, quote, safe area, free from armed attack or any other hostile act, as you'll learn that Srebrenica is a really important and vicious place. In May 1993, so a month after they declared Srebrenica a safe area, they declared four more cities safe zones. So they declared uh, Bihać, Sarajevo, Gorazia, and Tuzla as safe areas. I think for the most part those remained reasonably safe. I don't know. I don't think that... The important thing about this conflict is that it really showed the... I don't want to say ineptitude, but the lack of ability to handle a conflict like this for the UN. It really showed like glaring holes in their capabilities of dealing with armed conflict rather than dealing with a situation that's already reached tentative peace like in the previous conflicts. I mean, there was definitely some conflict in Croatia and the peacekeepers were under threat there, but it was a very different situation. Bosnia was really where the UN was like caught with their pants down, so to speak, like things weren't going the way that they were supposed to go at all. And it uh, has left a lot of enduring questions about the role of U- the United Nations and peacekeeping efforts. So the final kind of phase of the UN war in Bosnia was monitoring the Muslim Croat Federation and weapons exclusion zones. So eventually the UN monitored a US brokered ceasefire in Bosnia in February 1994, creating the Muslim Croat Federation. UN Prefor was responsible for monitoring the zones of separation and weapons control points. In addition, the UN Security Council increased UN Prefor's authorized strength to monitor weapons exclusion zones, but never actually altered the operations mandate. So a part of the reason, I guess, that their strength was authorized to kind of be improved was that there was a lot of situations where the rules of engagement for the UN Protection Force really hindered what the UN Protection Force could actually do. And you'll see that come up at conflicts, especially like Srebrenica, where the UN is really caught in this position of the peacekeepers' rules of engagement make it so they can't really do their jobs and, in fact, become cannon fodder themselves a little bit. So, yeah, that's essentially the the role of the UN or, like, their mandate in Bosnia. They'll come up in a couple of other instances, but for the most part, we're not going to focus as much on the UN as uh, as we did in, on the, in Croatia, but there's... There's reasons for that. So, Before we get back to Sarajevo, it's important to note there are concentration camps in Bosnia. This is the 90s. This is 50 years after the Second World War. And there are fucking concentration camps in Europe again. So the Bosnians, they suffered early defeats due to poor equipment and preparation. The JNA and Serb militia, they targeted specifically Bosniak civilian centers, killed them or drove them away, then burnt their homes, shops, etc. to prevent them from ever returning. Male and female Bosniaks who were captured, they were separated. Males were taken to prison labor camps where they were forced to work. They were tortured and just kept in horrific conditions. Very little food, very little warmth. Very little anything. Meanwhile, the females unfortunately got it worse. They are taken to detention centers and kept in just as horrific conditions. And Serb paramilitary police and JNA soldiers would frequently visit these camps, handpick women, take them outside, and then rape them repeatedly, often in gangs. 
there is a photo that I found and it's absolutely horrific. It's uh, of these men from the ARB had just liberated a camp, I guess. And there's a woman giving a bit of a, what's known as the thousand yard stare straight at the ground. And she is absolutely covered in blood. And according to the source where I found this, she was liberated from one of these rape camps. There's no other way to describe what these camps are. They're not prison camps. They were specifically there for the woman to be there to be easy pickings. Like I said, killing is one thing, but if you're going to, the absolute evil is using rape as a weapon in any situation. Yeah, that's uh, left a lot of scars on like just present day even. the That's like one of the, the deepest thing that's probably hardest for everybody to get over and deal with and get moved past is like the widespread sexual assault and like that leaves a really like deep impact on on these places that's never really gonna heal. Like it's a different type of warfare. It's not just like the systematic murder of people it's like yeah it's it's different because the, the intent was never even really to murder these women so no they were just there to be <laughs> a quick fun time a lot of these women died of course well yeah traumatic injuries yeah i mean when you got something like that happening it just i read completely... some some really horrifying accounts of rape just with like yeah objects that yeah a lot of women died from just physical trauma from these rapes, too. It wasn't, like, standard. It was pretty sadistic. And then you have the woman who survived this whole thing, but did they really survive? Yeah. You gotta ask yourself that. Did these people really survive? And I think, like, I don't, I doubt this, this is not the first conflict to use the systematic rape of, as, like, use systematic rape as a weapon, but I feel like it's kind of now a really common marker in civil wars like this because you see it in so many of the conflicts in Africa as well. Like, and in uh, Myanmar right now, like with the Rohingya. And so, Syria. And Syria. Like it's, well, yeah, the entire, everywhere ISIS is really. Yeah. Like it's, it's not a new thing, but it never loses its, its edge or shock value. It's always horrible and it's always, unfortunately, it always works. <laughs> Yeah. So that's why it keeps happening. But I it's... think I think this was potentially even if I know it's not the first time it happened because I mean in World War II even the Russians were Yeah, the Soviets were notorious, notorious about that. I think that this is like maybe one of the best documented cases of it. I think it it actually made you know like everybody kind of knew about it. It wasn't like previous conflicts where like we kind of just looked past it because they were our allies or it wasn't a really big problem. It was still a big problem, but not like a widespread like problem. But I think that this was a, this conflict hit home to a lot of people and it kind of, things like this are what really leaked out of it. And it was, yeah. It was also the first, probably the first war that this kind of thing was like, it was being presented on the news well i mean vietnam was the first conflict to ever really be on news but bosnia was on like but i mean like cnn in, <laughs> well i mean like in terms of um 
like like headlines saying oh mass rape yeah yeah occurring. and i think the the part of the reason for that actually would i think is uh just like the invention of cnn and the 24-hour news cycle right like they're reporting on everything which a lot of the time it's like okay cnn this is useless but in situations like this yeah you see these types of things really come up so if i'm probably going to continue to get a bit emotional throughout the rest of this podcast and i apologize to our listeners but this was really hard for us you, you understand i'm sure i'm sure they feel the same way yeah moving back on to sarajevo by may sarajevo was completely surrounded and under constant fire from serb forces stationed in the hills you're literally being shot at and killed by people you can't even see Members of the Patriotic League and other Bosniak militia began sporadic attacks against JNA positions within Sarajevo. So they did kind of the same thing. If you guys remember the, in Croatia, they would, the, the Croatian defenders would, in Volvodinia, they, they, instead of going straight on the attack, they would make small attacks on positions and then pull back. Exact same kind of tactics here. On May 2nd, Izbegovic was arrested by the Yugoslav police at the Sarajevo airport. In retaliation, the ARB ambushed a JNA convoy in the streets of Sarajevo. They killed 42 soldiers, wounded over 70, and around 220 were captured. By this point, the VRS was established, and it was placed under the command of Mladic. And he took things to a different turn. This is what partially makes him a monster, is he just began the constant bombardment of Sarajevo during the last weeks of May. As a result of this, the UN actually imposed sanctions on Yugoslavia as a result, and this did include Bosnia. So a complete arms embargo. Women knew that things were not going to get better, and they were hearing rumors of the Serb soldiers being rapists, and just absolute monsters, which they were, to be they kind of were, but I mean, we can't really say much better about the ARB or the Croats at this point, or the Croats, yeah. So women began taking their children and they left en masse. Now leaving was difficult, but it was not impossible, even though this was a siege, because there, even though this was a siege, there were still kind of breaks in the lines where they can sneak past. There's kind of always that. I mean, even in like the Siege of Leningrad, right? People still manage to sort of escape. <laughs> yeah. But also... At least early on. It yeah. Is. But also the JNAs and Serb forces were easily bribed. I mean, so were the ARB and Croa Croatian forces. Yeah. But the, you could just e easily give them some cash and they'll let you through. Like, oh, you're, you're Bosniak? Oh, but you got cash? Yeah. Go on. Sweet. I didn't see you. Like, that's, that's how <laughs> easy it was at first. because the situation was ultimately bad for everybody. It's like, all these soldiers know what's happening in their own places. So, like, yeah, I'll take your money because, like, yeah. well, I'm probably not being paid, frankly. Like, yeah. For the most, for for me, like, you got to remember, like, I'll say, like, I'm not saying all the Serbs were no. horrible people. We're, neither of us are saying that. It's just like, like the you can't really defend members of the JNA or the VRS. You can't. No. Now the Serb civilians, of course, they were. Yeah. They, they I mean, were the ones suffering, as all civilians do. Yeah. There's I mean, there's certainly always an element of like sympathizing and and maybe not being actively 
involved in the conflict but not actively fighting it. But, I mean, we're also not here to blame those people either. Absolutely not. They were victims of their own respective, like, of their of their own groups who said they were there to protect them and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. Sniper alleys appeared all throughout the city. So these were literally places where there were snipers posted. There were signs all over the place that said, warning snipers. And people would have to run as fast as they fucking could through these... Because these snipers would just shoot indiscriminately. Didn't matter if you looked like a civilian. You could be a fighter. You don't know. They super weren't like great snipers either. Like, like they hit their marks, so they were good technically. But, like, they weren't very good at differentiating people. No, they didn't. I don't think they tried very hard either, but, like... No. They didn't. They just see movement and they would shoot. By summer, all public services completely collapsed. And as a result, the crime rate... increased dramatically so there was a lot of looting of course i mean some of this had to do like quite a bit of this had to do with the fact the basic need to survive but i mean people were also mugging each other but i I think that that's like really common in these types of situations absolutely especially when you're in a city that's under siege there's a really like part of the purpose of a siege is to stop things like supply lines so like your intention is to starve the people out and so, obviously, everyone's going to turn on each other eventually because it's pretty hard to keep a high morale when you haven't eaten in a while and you're being shot at from the hills. Like It's true, yeah. Your morale is not going to stay high for long. Well, people just needed to survive. They needed food and they needed... There was no food. Yeah. Or there's little food. I mean, the UN was bringing food in through airlifts into but the But, I mean, hospital. there's only so much you can do. Hospital? Into the airport, I mean. <laughs> there, Yeah, there's very little... I mean, there's a whole fucking city. And then there's no food, there's no water, and there's no electricity. You gotta remember, Syria was in the middle of a valley in the middle of mountains. It gets cold. Mm-hmm. To show you just how everyone were... Like, no group was... No, no group was good. Rogue ARB soldiers under the command of Musan Talovich led a mass execution campaign against Serbs living in Bosniak majority areas. Most of these victims were buried in a mass grave in Kazani, which is an area within the Sarajevo canton. Word of Toplovich's atrocities, they later reached the ARB high command and they sent in police to arrest him. But Toplovich and his men killed nine officers and were not arrested, so the police were forced to retreat. Sweet. So they killed their own fucking people. Yeah, that's that's the sign that you're fighting for more than just like what everyone thinks you're fighting for. Yeah, like eventually the ARB sent in more men with the support of the police. So Toplovich surrendered under the condition that he would not receive the death penalty. However, he did die. The official reports say that he was killed while attempting to escape, but there are other reports which I found that one of the fathers of the one of the killed police officers beat him to death. Hmm. I mean, kind of fitting for this kind of monster. So whichever one makes you feel better about it, that's probably how he died. I prefer to think that he got beaten to death, but that's just me. Yeah. (laughs) Living out some revenge. Oh yeah. So to help turn the tides on their side, the Bosnian government, actually put smugglers who had enlisted, former smugglers who had enlisted into the ARB to work using their skills 
in sneaking arms past Serbian lines and into the city, despite the international arms embargo. Clever. This is fucking clever, yeah. <laughs> when in doubt, hire the criminals. Yeah, and it worked. <laughs> it obviously worked. Yeah, because they were just able to quickly, like, easily sneak criminals past. Criminals know what they're doing, man. They're not dumb. They're, these people, yeah, they've been doing this their whole life. That's the interesting thing. A lot of, like, remember soldiers in the Serbskin army or in the Bosnian army were former, like, like, for example, Toplovich was a mafia boss, basically. Oh, yeah. But a lot of these other guys were just people like smugglers. Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. Sure. I know how to use a gun. I know, how, like, they wanted to because they believed their country to be free. Yeah. But they're all, but at, then... It, um, well, they also the, had the added incentive of, like, we probably, they probably won't arrest you. No. It's <laughs> when like, it's all said and done. Yeah. It, like, <laughs> the, the Bosnian high command was basically like, let's just put these people's skills to work. And it worked. These smugglers also had a tunnel constructed in 1993 in order to sneak arms and other supplies past the Serbian lines and into the city. So literally under their feet. It was known as the Sarajevo Tunnel, but it was also known as the Tunnel of Hope. Because as well as sneaking supplies in, it would help sneak people out. Yeah. I think the thing that people forget is that like the best possible people you can have for like a situation like this, especially like in an urban warfare setting are the people who know the underworld of the city, so to speak, the best. And, like, honestly, sometimes there aren't really a lot of differences between generals and mob bosses, right? Like, mm -hmm. in reality, they both manage armies. Their tactics are just different. And sometimes they're not, like in this type of conflict. Oh, God, So, yeah. like, it makes sense that, yeah, okay, cool, we'll hire all these smugglers because they know what they're doing. They have, like, the least chance of being killed, the best chance of surviving, or, like, of succeeding. And, like... Fuck it, it's a lawless society anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Desperate times? <laughs> yeah, so. it, absolutely. But it's like, it's definitely like... And hey, criminals are patriots too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's definitely like, you know what? We might as well put them to work. Well, especially because they were probably going to be smuggling shit in and out anyway. Oh, yeah. May as well just get in front of that and make yeah. them your bitch. <laughs> and I mean, they, these people were good people too, like... Like yeah, they might have been smugglers. Who knows what they would have been might have been smuggling beforehand? But they actually got them to where they like they got certain supplies where they needed to go, oh, yeah. such as to the civilians. I think because at the end of the day, those types of people generally, it's like almost obviously not all smugglers are like Robin Hoods of the world because they're not. But I think that some of these people probably were right. Like they knew that doing this would benefit civilians. They might not have liked the government or anything like that, but by helping them, they could actually help their people the best. It was like the most, it's kind of like you got to take one for the team a little bit to actually accomplish your goals, which Definitely. is my guess. I don't know. That might be speaking too highly of these people, but I don't know. No, I, I think it's fair. To but say there aren't that. a lot of good people in this story. So like, yeah, we need, <laughs> we need good people. So, like, I'll call the smugglers probably the good guys. <laughs> probably, yeah. During this time, of course, with the 24-hour news going on, because there were a lot of news crews in Syria, in Bosnia and Sarajevo, like, trust me. Actually, in this whole conflict, like, yeah. I mean, the, the Canadian contingent, like, just using the press to pressure the Croats, like, cool. Yeah, we're going to have a press conference and tell everyone how shitty you are. Yeah. It'll work. Well, I remember my, my dad says he remembers seeing this stuff on the news. I'm sure your parents probably do. Oh, yeah. And I remember, too, like, actually the news contingent comes up a lot in the comparative things that are done about Bosnia and, or, well, Yugoslavia and Rwanda and how, like, the news coverage was disproportionately focused on 
the current like it was in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just an argument that because of like the fact that this conflict is in Africa and the Western world doesn't give a shit about Africa, like of course they're focusing everything on this conflict in Europe because white people are dying. Yeah, was, which I don't agree with that. Sentiment. I do and I don't. I think there's like a level of. Uh, truth to it to some extent because for the most part like we probably don't care as much about african conflicts as we do about conflicts in europe especially because of like the fact that this happened not that long after a pretty large conflict in europe yeah like we care more about that just inherently i don't i don't necessarily agree that like to say we the news definitely but i but like we as like people but the news is driven by the people who watch it i guess but (laughs) well i I don't agree with that either i think it's a it's anyway well anyway with the 24-hour news circuit of course the shelling of sarajevo was shown i found news clips of like actually people getting shot by snipers and it was like that was on the news Mm -hmm. i mean they would probably at most blur it out today but then they back then they didn't. It was quite shocking because of this being shown on the news so frequently. Public international favor turned quickly against the Serbs, and this actually led for calls for armed intervention. Now, the single deadliest attack during the siege occurred on February fifth, nineteen ninety four, when a mortar barrage struck the Markal open air market killing 68 people and wounding 144. The following year in August, another attack occurred at the market, killing a further further 43 people, and both attacks were accredited to the BRS. And this market attack actually had a very significant turn in Bosnia. So in Sarajevo, the Verbania Bridge battle became kind of one of the bigger ones that the UN was involved in. It was... A conflict between the UN Pro 4 forces. Uh, so, Frenbat, the French battalion, was stationed in Sarajevo. And yeah, the Battle of Rabania Bridge was like a 32 minute long firefight that had a lot of importance. And it happened on the 27th of May, 1995. The bridge is located in kind of a no man's land during the siege. It's surrounded by a lot of tall buildings, so it became a sniper alley. And it's where, as Jonah mentioned, those two women were shot. So that bridge kind of became like a symbol of obviously that, but then also there was a kind of a firefight, but it was, it was kind of a no man's land. The UN occupied posts on both sides of the bridge, both the North and the South. A ceasefire had been negotiated by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, and in March 1995, it expired. So fighting resumed. And on the 27th of May, Bosnian Serb soldiers pass, or posing as French soldiers and they did this because they had previously like taken out some French soldiers and stole their shit. So they impersonated French UN soldiers, like blue berets and everything. They captured the UN observation posts on both ends of the bridge without firing a single shot. So it's kind of impressive because they were able to masquerade as French, French soldiers. So they disarmed 12 peacekeepers in total. Two were kept as human shields and 10 were transported away as hostages. French Colonel Eric Sandal, which I didn't think was a very French name, but anyway, um, commander of the 4th French Battalion, said, quote, When the Serbs took our soldiers under their control by threat, by dirty tricks, they began to act as terrorists, and you cannot support this. You must react. And we did. End quote. The first evidence something was wrong to the French was the radio silence from those posts, and a French captain 
went to investigate the situation and was almost taken prisoner by a Serb sentry in a French uniform. This Serb sentry came out to meet him and the French guy quickly realized, oh, you're not French, and managed to get away. The French quickly responded and sent a platoon of 30 troops from Frenbat, and they were from the 3rd Marine Infantry Regiment to recapture the northern end of the bridge, and they were backed by 70 French infantry, 6 armoured cars, and several armoured personnel carriers. So the assault force was led by French Captain Francois Lequant, and he was actually the one who was almost taken hostage, like, earlier that day, so, because he's the one who figured out the problem. He was the one to lead the assault. The French Marines overran a sangar held by the Serbs, and a sangar is basically just, like, a fortified position. So they overran that held by the Serbs, which cost them one French life. And fun fact, this attack actually marked the first French bayonet charge since the Korean War. So they did this with bayonets. Because <laughs> France, I don't know, didn't even know there was a bayonet charge during the Korean War. But here we are. The assault was supported by 90, milli- 90 millimeter fire, direct fire from the armored cars and some heavy machine gun fire. So they had cover. The Serbs responded with mortar bombs and fire from anti-aircraft weapons, which kind of seems like overkill, but I guess you use what you got. (laughs) Five French soldiers were wounded, while four Serbs were killed, and four were taken prisoner. The Bosnian snipers also got involved, and like I said when I mentioned they weren't really good, they accidentally shot and wounded one French hostage. So, not really helping, even though they were trying, I think. The French are probably like, fuck off, we don't need you. (laughs) After the 32-minute long firefight... The Serbs still controlled the southern end of the bridge while the French occupied the north. The Serbs asked for a truce to recover their dead and wounded under the threat of killing French hostages, so that was allowed. Uh, The wounded French hostage that the Bosnians shot, I think, was immediately released and evacuated to a UN hospital. Uh, The Serbs eventually gave up and abandoned the southern end of the bridge. I guess it just really wasn't worth it to them. And the last French hostage managed to escape. The second French soldier to die was killed by a sniper while supporting the assault from the Jewish cemetery, and one of the wounded French would later die that day from his wounds. The Serb prisoners were treated as POWs and detained at a UN Perfora facility. And the main thing I think that kind of got taken away from this conflict, or at least this is what the French claimed, was that after this, it showed the Serbs that the UN's attitude had changed, that they weren't just going to like lay down for these attacks anymore like they couldn't just be attacked and not expect the the UN to retaliate so it kind of changed the Serbs attitude towards engaging with the French forces because they really didn't after that they picked their battles a little bit more wisely so yeah the the battle was uh short but pretty important and also because I believe it was like the heaviest French casualties that they suffered in the entire conflict like in Yugoslavia period So yeah, that was like the main kind of tussle in Sarajevo with the UN. And like I said, the UN wasn't nearly as... We're not going to focus on the UN anyways as much, just because their involvement in Bosnia was actually tied up really heavily with NATO. NATO first became involved in Bosnia and Yugoslavia in general in February 1992 when the alliance issued a statement to all belligerents in the conflict to allow the deployment of UN peacekeepers. So that was something I actually didn't realize is that the NATO basically, NATO had to like, had to basically create the setting for peacekeepers to even be able to go in, kind of. NATO foreign ministers agreed to assist the UN in monitoring compliance with sanctions established under the Security Council resolutions 713 and 757, so the sanctions you mentioned would have been supported and monitored by the, by NATO. 
In October 1992, the Security Council passed Resolution 781, establishing a no-fly zone over Bosnia, and NATO expanded its mission in the area to include Operation Sky Monitor, which monitored Bosnian airspace for flights from the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. So, basically, they wanted to keep the JNA from bombing Bosnia. (laughs) So, on November 16th, 1992, the Security Council issued Resolution 787, which called upon member states to halt or quote halt all inward and outbound maritime shipping in order to verify and inspect all cargo end quote to ensure compliance with sanctions and NATO replaced their previous mission with Operation Maritime Guard, which authorized NATO forces to stop ships and inspect their cargoes. So unlike previous missions, because the NATO already was engaged in like maritime stuff, so unlike those missions, NATO was now an enforcement force. So their mission was now enforcement rather than just monitoring the situation. And you'll see this kind of NATO starts like getting more and more involved in Bosnia. NATO's air mission also changed from monitoring to enforcement with uh, the Security Council Resolution 816, which authorized states to use measures to, quote, ensure compliance, end quote, (laughs) with the no-fly zone over Bosnia. So there had been some incursions, I think. On April 12, 1993, NATO initiated Operation Deny Flight, which was tasked with enforcing the no-fly zone using fighter planes based in the area. And throughout 1993, the role of NATO forces in Bosnia just continued to grow. Their role continued to grow even more in 1994 when NATO fighters operating under Deny Flight shot down four Serbian jets. This became the first combat operation in NATO history, actually and opened the door for a steadily growing NATO presence. The UN is working with NATO this whole time, but NATO is essentially doing things that the UN can't do. That same April, the presence of NATO air power continued to grow during a Serb attack on Gorazdja, which I mentioned earlier as a UN safe area. So NATO launched its first close air support mission on April 10, 1994, bombing several Serb targets at the request of UN commanders. NATO launched several other limited airstrikes in coordination with the UN. This was, I think, kind of a turning point in the situation for the UN, too, when they started just being like, nope, we're using air support, we're going to actually fight back here, because we're clearly not able to do our jobs. So, after the events of Srebrenica and the deaths of 8,000 civilians, which Jonah will talk about after this, 16 nations met at the London Conference in July 1995 to consider new options for Bosnia. UN Secretary General Boutros Ghali gave UN military commander Bernard Janvier the authority to request NATO airstrikes without consulting civilian officials as a way to streamline the process. So I think the airstrikes had always been available, but were really difficult to actually get because they had to fit within the rules of engagement and everyone had to agree and it was a whole thing. So they decided to streamline that process because they realized that the airstrikes were helping significantly, I think. So the North Atlantic Council and the UN also agreed to use NATO airstrikes in response to attacks on any of the other safe zones and safe areas in Bosnia. So Srebrenica was kind of a, well, and Gorazdja, but especially Srebrenica, because it was the most successful attack by Serbs (laughs) and the biggest failure of NATO, uh, or sorry, the UN, not not NATO. Um, After that, it kind of meant that NATO was essentially not willing to let other Srebrenicas happen, so they became even more involved. The participants at the conference also agreed in principle to the use of large-scale NATO NATO airstrikes in response to future acts of aggression by Serbs. So, like, at this point, NATO had pretty much had it up to here with Serbia. They're like, if you keep doing this, we're just going to keep shooting at you because we're sick of this shit. After the London conference, NATO planned an aggressive air campaign against the Bosnian Serbs because, again, sick of this shit. 
On August 28, 1995, Serb forces launched a mortar shell at the Sarajevo marketplace, killing 37 people. Um, Admiral Leighton Smith, NATO commander, recommended that NATO launch retaliatory airstrikes under Operation Deliberate Force. And on August 30, 1995, NATO officially launched Operation Deliberate Force with large-scale bombing of Serb targets. The bombing lasted from August 30th until September 20th, 1995, and involved over 338 individual attacks. NATO just became increasingly involved in Bosnia. They weren't really involved in in Croatia as much, or at all, really. Bosnia was the main one. Which I think is kind of fascinating, because just based on even the UN's mandate, but got some stuff to say about that once we're kind of at the end. But yeah, that was something that was a little bit surprising to me, as I, I knew that NATO had been involved in this conflict, but I didn't really realize the scale of it until I was doing this research in it. Weirdly, I just keep thinking about the movie uh, Behind Enemy Lines. Mm. It's like, I think that's the one. Yeah, yeah, Behind Enemy Lines. All I can think about is that movie. I don't know why, but I just, that's, I think partially because that movie is like one of the only like pop culture references to Bosnia and it was a NATO situation. So I hadn't really thought about that until recently. Really all just clicked in my brain, which is not, probably should have happened sooner. I've never seen that movie. It's, um pretty good i mean it's a 90s movie so it or like early 2000s so like it is what it is but it, mm. it's got some pretty good moments they definitely um i thought it did a pretty good job of at least highlighting the moral, moral ambiguity and just yeah and the quand the moral quandaries that like nato forces would have felt mm. because uh essentially quick rundown it's just based on this pilot who is doing surveillance missions over bosnia and taking photos of mass graves Ah. and then gets shot down. So they they dealt directly head-on with the, like, slaughter in Bosnia, and I think that's, like, part of, yeah. I think Bosnia is just synonymous now with the massive, mass death that happened. Hmm. And, like, every reference to Bosnia now is probably going to be related to things like Srebrenica. Yep. Now, what Srebrenica was, it was one of the... UN safe areas. I think it was the largest UN safe area. Yeah, in the first. Yeah, in the leading up to this atrocity, 296 surrounding villages were destroyed, and most of these were Muslim villages destroyed by Serbs, but there was also Serb villages destroyed by the Bosniaks. And also 70,000 people were displaced. In July 1995, General Mladic and his forces pushed into the region, rounded up, and killed all Muslim males in its custody. 25,000 locals sought refuge in the Dutch-controlled safe area, nicknamed Dutchbat. The Dutch entered negotiations with surrounding Serbian forces, and Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Karamans, at the same time, made repeated attempts for airstrikes to be conducted on the surrounding Serb forces, but his pleas were ignored. Facing a not basically annihilation, the Dutch bat caved and they handed over 3,000 people to the Serbs, mostly males of military age and several young boys, and all 3,000 were massacred. More horrific, Serb forces, they handpicked Muslim women and gang raped them in front and within view of the helpless Dutch soldiers. Now, Dutch bat, they were forced to watch this slaughter and unable to act due to stupid UN rules of, rules of engagement. 
And completely humiliated and traumatized, Dutch Bat actually eventually completely left Bosnia. The remaining Muslims that survived were transported to other Muslim safe zones 60 miles away. Many of these people were rounded up on Serb buses that was fueled by gas given to them by the UN. And these people were taken away, forced to dig shallow graves for themselves, and then they were shot and thrown inside. Even today, identification of bodies found at the massacre site is ongoing due to the poor conditions in which the bodies were treated. A total of 8,373 people were killed during the massacre. The chief war crimes investigator for the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague in 1996, Jean-René Ruse, said this, quote, What we're talking about here was a crime against humanity. And a crime against humanity is a crime against all of us, end quote. This is what the failure of humanity in Bosnia was. This was, to date, the worst genocide conducted in post-World War II Europe. This also had very huge repercussions in the Netherlands long after it happened. In 1996, the Dutch government ordered a report on Dutch on the Dutch Bat mission to see if there's any reason why or any like where the fault lied in their failure. And the report was finally released in 2002 and the report stated that the government did not provide adamant support and supplies to the Dutch Bat mission dooming it to fail and as a result the government resigned and the and well, it collapsed the government in the in the Netherlands. In 2006, the Dutch government, they awarded the Dutch peacekeepers who served in Dutch Bat an insignia of their own for their, quote, deserved recognition for their behavior in difficult circumstances, end quote. However, survivors and victims' relatives of the Srebrenica massacre were outraged by the move and they labeled it as a, quote, humiliating decision, end quote, and demonstrated in The Hague at the ceremonial location in Assen and in Sarajevo. And finally, the last major thing to mention about the Netherlands is in 2014, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands found that the Netherlands itself was responsible for the deaths of 300 people murdered at Srebrenica. So yeah, as you can see, Bosnia did not just affect Bosnia. No. We're going back to Sarajevo for one last time. How were the citizens managing? They did their best to adapt to the hardship and keep their life going. For example, many banded together to protect one another, make sure they were getting what they needed and maintaining order in the chaos. Many shared their homes with people who had, who had theirs destroyed or were occupied by soldiers. There was also stories that cigarettes actually became a common currency for people to buy food, batteries, drink, etc., Cigarettes are a really common currency, or cur common currency in these types of situations. They're yeah, because they're everywhere. Not everyone smokes them too, but so you just give a couple packs to the people well, who smoke them. They're also them. just like easy currency too, right? Because yeah. they're not really perishable. It's like easy to hide and carry. You can carry a lot of them without being obvious. Like oh, he's just got cigarettes. He's just smoking cigarettes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it became cigarettes became a huge currency in Sarajevo. People would also go in groups to move through Sniper Alley and make sure 
everyone got out safe. It would confuse, kind of confuse the snipers because you're like, oh, there's a group of people. Uh, uh, and they kind of hesitate to shoot a group of people and they would be able to get through. Medical personnel remained at their posts to help the wounded and sick and also regular people volunteered to help in any way that they could. Giving them supplies, runners to go get supplies and bring them back. Just cleaning wounds. Basic first aid stuff you can teach yeah. anybody. Like the donating old rags they have for like bandages or probably donating blood too donating blood yeah for sure and like you know the just stick a tube in your arm and then just let it gravity do its work kind of deal yeah this was i i love this bit the makeshift bars were set up in order to like maintain and like music live music would be played these would be in like basements well, I mean, you have to, right? How else yeah. are you going to keep morale up? And you need to keep your morale up if you're going to be in a con- if you're going to live through a conflict like that. It's not uncommon to see photos of like, I mean, in any war in general, to see yeah. like people fighting and then like there's a guy playing a guitar mm-hmm. off to the side. It's just how it is. But these were like the citizens, just like you know what, we need to forget our woes and whatnot. We need to keep life going. So they'd have bars by um, lamplight. <laughs> Play songs of the, like, folk traditional songs, dance, drink, get wasted, the whole thing. As mentioned earlier, uh, the markets were still running. So vendor, like, shop owners who'd lost their shops or anything, they would just continue either out of their burnt out shops or in front of their burnt burning shops and continue to sell the stuff that they sold. So these would be, like, fruits, vegetables, meat, and sweets so chocolate candy just things to keep the children calm i guess and also the adults calm because everyone keep people awake definitely coffee was also a big thing i forgot about that coffee like coffee and chocolate and uh candy are like always hard to find during wartime is because like they're important for caffeine (laughs) yeah like it's literally to keep people awake too this is this is the greatest story uh in 1993 there is a beauty pageant held called Miss Besieged Sarajevo. <laughs> it was a Miss America-esque beauty pageant held in a basement. It was eventually won by Emela Nodjic. If you're listening, hello. Hope you're doing well. She's still alive. She was at the time 17. and Congrats on your win. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, Not just on your win, but keeping morale for the citizens up and for surviving. And how most people, like, this is an interesting part of the story is when you're like, when you see like Miss America beauty pageants, I guess, it's always like, they always like, if you could wish for one thing, and uh, the stereotypical answer is world peace. Instead of asking for world peace, collectively, all of the women at the end of the pageant held up a banner that said, don't let them kill us. But it's just an amazing story. You're in this bombed out city. You're still being shelled while this thing is going on. You're holding a beauty pageant with the talent portion, the bikini contest, like all that shit, all that shit. And just so, um, in case you're all wondering, Nozich currently is not, uh, currently lives in the Netherlands and she seems to be doing well. That's good. Yeah. So. There is some positivity in this story. Yeah. This is the whole heartwarming thing. Eventually, 
Bo the Bosnian and Croatian forces were like, enough of this. They joined forces and they actually managed to, in their joint operation, push the Serb forces out of Sarajevo, allowing heat, water, and electricity to be restored to the city. Because of how badly they were beaten, the Serbs begged for a ceasefire, which was done in October 1995. This led on into the Dayton Agreements, which we'll get to in just a moment. The last known act of violence during the siege was on January 9th, 1996, when an RPG was fired at a tram, killing 55-year-old Mrazda Duric and wounding 19 others. The siege was officially declared over on February 9th, 1996 by the Bosnian government. 70,000 Bosnian Serbs left the city and relocated to Srpska, never to return. The death toll throughout this entire siege, 2,241 VRS and JNA soldiers dead, 6,137 ABR and CDC soldiers dead, and a total of 5,434 civilians. It lasted three years, 10 months, three weeks, and three days, which is longer than the Battle of Stalingrad and the Siege of Leningrad combined. Oh yeah, one more thing on the chocolate and candy. Don't know why I'm fixating on this, probably because I now want chocolate choc and candy. It is. We are recording this on Halloween, Halloween. too. so um, And coffee. But like, the reason too that that's important for civilians in um, situations like that is also to stay awake because you don't, when you don't have heat, sleeping for too long is dangerous. Because you could freeze to death. So, like, this is a really common thread in Leningrad, like in the Siege of Leningrad, too, because this obviously happened in the fucking winter. The Nazis just didn't know what they were doing. Um, or they did, I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so staying awake in the cold, real important. Anywho's, getting to the end of this conflict, finally, we now go to Dayton, Ohio. So, the general framework agreement for peace in Bosnia and Herzegovina a.k.a. the Dayton Agreement, the Dayton Accords, the Paris Protocol, Protocol, or the Dayton-Paris Agreement, whichever name you choose, is a peace agreement reached at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio. The agreement was formally reached on November 1st, 1995 in Dayton and signed on December 14th, 1995 in Paris. So these accords put an end to the three-and-a-half-year-long Bosnian War. And the basic elements of the Dayton Agreement, they had been proposed in peace talks the whole time basically as early as 1992. So something I guess to remember is, as this whole thing is happening for all these years, there's peace talks the entire time. It's a lot like Korea, where like there's always a, some semblance of a peace talk. How productive they are is obviously questionable, but they at least were happening. The Dayton Agreement was actually initiated, though, after a number of failed peace talks. The August 1995 Croatian military operation Storm and its aftermath the government military offensive against the Republic of Srpska that was also conducted in parallel with NATO's Operation Deliberate Force. Essentially, after all of these really traumatic things, Shravenica included, the U.S. managed to broker this type of summit. So during September and October of 1995, world powers, especially the United States and Russia, gathered in contact groups to apply pressure to the three sides to attend negotiations in Dayton. So a contact group is essentially like a meeting of Security Council members outside of the official Security Council. So it's like, yeah, small groups of, of people from those countries trying to make shit happen, uh, basically. <laughs> so they applied pressure to the three sides to attend the negotiations in Dayton. I mean, Russia's obviously had historic ties to Serbia, so they were helpful in that. Although they have their own problematic relationship 
to this conflict. Um, but anyways, the conference in Dayton took place between the 1st and 5th of November in 1995, and the main participants from the region were the president of, president of the Republic of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic. He also represented the Bosnian Serbs in the absence of Radovan Karadzic, president of Croatia, Franjo Tudjman, and the president of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Elia Izbegovic. Yeah, Izbegovic. With his foreign minister, Muhammad Shacherbeg. Man, I just messed that name up so bad. Um, anyway, the conference was led by the U.S. Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, and negotiator Richard Holbrook, with two co-chairmen in the form of EU Special Representative Carl Bildt of Sweden and First Deputy Foreign Minister of Russia, Igor Ivanov. The secure site was chosen for a couple of reasons, but basically the main reason was that um, by being in Dayton, of all places, uh, it would remove all parties from their comfort zones, which, if they didn't, it would allow very little incentive for negotiations between the three parties, so it needs to be on neutral soil, essentially. It was chosen as well to reduce the ability of all the sides to negotiate through the media and to securely house over the over 800 staff in attendance of this conference. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So curbing the ability to negotiate through the media was actually a particularly important um, consideration. Holbrook wanted to prevent po any posturing through early leaks to the press, and so if you're in a location like... A military base in Ohio. The three sides of the conflict ultimately don't really have a press to try and posture through, especially the Serbs, because they're not exactly loved by the American press. So after the agreement was initialed in Dayton, the full informal agreement was signed in Paris on the 14th of December 1995. The signing was witnessed by the Spanish Prime Minister Felipe Gonzalez, French President Jacques Chirac, U.S. President Bill Clinton, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, and Prussian Prime Minister Victor Chernomerdin. The agreements, I practiced how to say it last night and completely forgot. Anyway, <laughs> the agreement's main purpose is to promote peace and stability in Bosnia and to endorse regional balance in and around the former Yugoslavia. The present political divisions and its structure of government were agreed upon as part of the constitution that makes up Annex 4 of the General Framework Agreement concluded at Dayton. A key component of this was the delineation of the inter-entity boundary line to which many of the tasks listed in the annexes referred. So the inter-entity boundary line, or the IEBL, divides Bosnia into two entities, the Republika of Srpska and the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So the state of Bosnia and Herzegovina was set as the Federation of Bosnia, Herzegovina, and the Republic of Srpska. So this is super confusing. Bosnia and Herzegovina is a complete state as opposed to a confederation, so no entities or entities could ever be separated from Bosnia and Herzegovina unless by due legal process. So the Republika of Srpska and the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina are two entities within the state of Bosnia and Herzegovina. <laughs> and those two entities can't separate unless there is a legal judicial process. Well, more confusing today is it's no longer known as the state of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Yeah. It's called the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So there's a Federation of Bosnia. The Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina is an Inside the Federal <laughs> Yeah. It's <laughs> It's like the turducken of Bosnia. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of what it is, though. Like, it's, it's really confusing. Anyway, um, although highly decentralized in its entity entities, it would still return or retain. Sorry, I can't read my own writing. It would still retain a central government with a rotating state presidency, a central bank, and a constitutional court. 
The agreement mandated a wide range of international organizations to monitor and oversee and implement components of the agreement. The result of the accord was the creation of I-4, Implementation Force, a 60,000-troop-strong NATO-led peacekeeping force. So the UN at this point kind of bowed out, and, the, and NATO took over. I-4 was responsible for implementing the military aspects of the agreement and deployed on the 20th of December 1995, taking over the forces of UN before. The Office of the High Representative was charged with the task of civil implementation, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe was tasked with organizing the first free elections in Bosnia in 1996. Um, before the agreement, Bosnian Serbs controlled about 46% of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bosniaks controlled about 28%, and Bosnian Croats had about 25%. And this is like actual landmass that they had held throughout the con- like this is during the conflict right before the agreements happened. So after the agreement, Bosnian Serbs got large tracts of mountainous land back and their percentage grew to 49% of land controlled. Bosniaks got most of Sarajevo and some important positions in eastern Bosnia. And their their percentage grew from 28% to 30%. But they mostly, the important part about those gains was actually that they greatly improved the quality of the land that they had. So it wasn't just like rocky, crappy land. They got like big tracts of Sarajevo and like they got better quality land. Bosnia and Croats kind of came out of this the worst. They gave up most of their territory and back to the Serbs or the Bosnian Serbs. And their percentage went down to 21% from 25%, with most of their important territories left out of their control. So pretty much all the territory they had that mattered (laughs) went to either the Serbs or the Bosniaks. So I'm sure the Bosnian Croats weren't really stoked about that. The immediate purpose of the agreement was to freeze military confrontation and prevent it from resuming. So the purpose was never really meant to do anything but that. Um, So it was therefore designed as a, quote, construction of necessity. But the the Dayton Agreement did prove, though, to be really highly flexible because it actually allowed Bosnia to move from an early post-war phase through reconstruction and consolidation. So it was never meant to really do that, but it did it. So it kind of showed the, like, strengths of this pact and how it worked. But there's definitely some valid criticisms of the Dayton Agreement. And I'll just kind of go through a couple here, just because they're important for context, I guess. Because there's a, this is still a, a reality in Bosnia, um, which is where the criticisms often come from. So the Dayton Accords created a complicated government system for Bosnia. The two entities were created to appease both sides, but such a dissolved government has left Bosnia deadlocked on important issues within the central government, as each party is ultimately championing, championing opposing priorities that are mostly just based on ethnic policies rather than actual shared ideals. So it was essentially like to stop the conflict, but um, yeah. It also created a dependency on international actors because Dayton was an international vision led by the US. It didn't allow Bosnian leaders to negotiate an ending to the war themselves. Therefore, it really left zero incentive in the peace building process and no area for leaders to discuss the underlying root cause of the conflict. So it basically stopped the conflict and left no room for anybody to learn learn about the conflict and move like actually systemically heal from it and like move forward from it. It basically didn't allow for that because it's so relying on, still relying really heavily on international actors. I mean, the international community had to help stop it and they helped bring about peace, but they can't really be responsible for healing wounds. The uh, influx of NGOs and international actors to kickstart investment after the war also failed to kickstart the economy 
uh, with Bosnia suffering from poor economic growth, even to this day. The lack of economic growth has been attributed to poor coordination between international actors and uh, lack of consideration for local capacity. I don't know much specifically, I haven't looked specifically too much into this in Bosnia, but I did recently watch a really fascinating documentary about the intervention of like NGOs and other international actors, especially after disasters, and how it often further cripples the place that got affected because it doesn't take into account for local capacity to handle the crisis. So what it doesn't do is it's easy for people to send free things to these countries to help them, which is useful to some extent. But past a certain point, unless there's investment in the local economy in terms of like agriculture, like uh, the biggest example was in Haiti after the earthquake. Everybody sent free rice, right? To help feed people of Haiti. But it completely destroyed the rice farming economy in Haiti. Rather, so rather than investing in the people who had land and had the ability to still grow rice, and rather than helping invest in that to make it affordable for local Haitians to per, like, have access to, they just sent free rice and it completely decimated that part of the economy, which was a huge part of Haiti's economy. And after that earthquake, there was a large infrastructure problem in terms of lights, like street lights. And there was a small Haitian company who had been really successful building these satellite or um, sorry, solar street lights. But rather than investing in that company that was employing Haitians, big American companies were like, we want to help, we want to help. And they sent a bunch of technology over just to do it themselves. So again, it's like, great that these people want to help, right? We want to encourage that. We want everybody to care about each other on a global scale. But it hindered the potential for, for growth in the Haitian economy because it stopped local businesses from even being able to compete. Because how are you going to compete with like Hewlett Packard or whoever it was, like this big ass company, right? When you're a tiny little startup in Haiti. So I don't know specifically about Bosnia, but I've read things. Um, there's more and more research to suggest that like this is a much, this is a common problem after disasters, especially. Um, and I think that for that, the results of that are probably still being felt in Bosnia. I think Bosnia of the Balkan countries is still by far the poorest, least developed and really kind of the least healed from the conflict too, in large part because of the, the agreement that helped end the conflict, which sounds really weird, but also kind of the case because the last major criticism here, Dayton ended the war, but it didn't promote peace. So it was meant to be a temporary end to the conflict while a long-term plan was developed and while Dayton has halted the conflict and there um, has not been a resurgence of violence, there is still a large military presence to mitigate any chance of violence actually reoccurring. So like, basically, we're still enforcing peace in Bosnia. <laughs> um, enforcing such peace can be seen as highlighting the still deep-rooted tensions in the country with Dayton covering the tracks of a fractured society that could be plunged back into conflict as soon as military military forces left. So essentially, Dayton was like a band-aid that's been left on too long, that's not really doing, it's like stopping the bleeding, but you're still bleeding. Like you're not really healing. The wound isn't healing, you're just stopping the bleeding. And so the concern is that Bosnia is still pretty rocky. I even saw some stuff recently about how like the current migrant crisis in Europe is causing really fractious relationships or relations in Bosnia. It's starting to heat up. Just little things like that. Like, it's so fragile that things that even are, like, bad for established countries, like we're seeing this in Germany, like, a huge influx of, of migrants to, like, really established countries. Like, Bosnia is so fragile that anything can ruin it at this point. So that's one of the major problems that people point out about Dayton, and I, I think that they're they're valid. I mean, obviously, 
Dayton had great intentions and it did its job. But I don't think it's the fault of the people who framed it either that this is the case because this was never meant to be a permanent solution, but it still is. Which I guess leads to like maybe questions about whether or not Dayton was slightly like heavy-handed in terms of forcing too much international help on the Bosnians rather than like allowing them to do a little bit more of it on themselves. But I don't know. I'm not even sure if there's a way for that to be different. Like, <laughs> It's kind of hard I think for people like us. Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately uh, it was important that the conflict ended when it did. But I guess, the, I guess like the major thing that's just hindering everything is really how the division of Bosnia ended up. Because as we said, it's super confusing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that if like we have a hard time understanding it, like I can't, I have a feeling that it's probably equally as confusing to the people who live there even still. Like, like how their government works because like. I, I'm sure they understand it better. Obviously, they live there, but it's like it's horrendously confusing to me. Yeah, <laughs> and I can't imagine that it makes anybody or anything easier for anybody, or makes anybody have any more faith in their government. Like, yeah, <laughs> I can't, I can't see anybody having faith in that. And also, ultimately, like by literally dividing the two, like by literally dividing it into two entities, you've just like reinforced the fact that like. Any of those ethnic and religious divides that existed before, they're going to exist forever now because we literally have two separate entities within the country. Like, I don't... I, I get that that was probably the only way to make Milosevic and Tujman and... Um, Izbegovic? Yeah. Kind of capitulate to each other, especially, I'm guessing, Milosevic. Um, <laughs> like, I, I, I get that that was probably the only way that it could ever really happen. But I also feel like maybe it was naive of them to think that they could move past that yeah. <laughs> as well. But at the end of the day, I think it's still better to have it happen than like have that conflict still be raging. Because to be honest, I don't know if it ever really would have ended. Who knows? Like, Or Bosnia might have been smaller because Serbska might have been part of Serbia. Who knows? Yeah, like it could have ended in a million different ways. Yeah. But I feel like it would have been worse had it not ended when it ended. Well, what's interesting is the reason why Sarajevo is within the Bosniak's hands is because Milosevic, he was so mad at Kardzic and Mladic that he forced them to give up their claim on Sarajevo. I have two quotes here. Uh, one is uh, an official quote and the other is a quote that I heard somewhere but haven't been able to find confirmation, so take it as you will. So I'll start with the unconfirmed quote. Uh, apparently he looked at Izbegovic during the Dana agreements and he said, you deserve Sarajevo because you fought for it and those cowards killed you from the hills. And the official statement that I found is he said, I'll tell you, Izbegovic has earned Sarajevo by not abandoning it. He's one tough guy. It's his. He ordered the, the two to give, Sarai, give up their claim to Sarajevo and give it to the Bosniaks. Which is fair. <laughs> yeah. I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I actually find the like conflict between Karadzic and Miros or and um, Milosevic like interesting because like they're kind of fighting for the same thing. But they hated each but other. But they hated each other. And like, I don't know. I just find it super interesting when that happens, like just because it creates this weird dynamic that ultimately has really nasty effects on conflicts like this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because it. It was Milosevic's forces in Srebrenica, though, wasn't it? 
Uh, no, it was. Uh, was it it was, it was sort of it, some elements of the JNA, but it was mostly Mladic. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so. army of uh, the army of Republic Srpska. That's what I thought. Mm. Um, I actually like that. Actually, fueled a lot more anger from Milosevic. Yeah. Towards because as monstrous as Milosevic was, I mean, I. It's weird because somehow he's going to come out being the good guy in this in a strange way. I mean, not really. Oh, but, just wait until the next step. I mean, like not really, but I mean, like comparatively, yeah. he did a lot of horrible shit, but he didn't really do a Shrevenitsa. Oh, it's not sure if he kind of did. He didn't order it. No, I know, but he, he was... didn't. But I mean, something similar. Like he didn't straight up like no, no massacre that many people. Like he. It's kind of hard to say whether or not he actually ordered any massacre at all, yeah. but he probably did at some point. I'm sure he did, but there's enough plausible deniability because at the end of the day, like your army is sometimes just gonna do stuff you don't want it to do. Mm-hmm. And your allies are going to do stuff that you don't want them to do. Exactly. So, ugh, as horrible as he is, he didn't. It's hard to prove, I guess. And that's part of why his his uh, trial was in, interesting. Because it, proving it is difficult to some extent with him. Yeah, well. There's enough, again, plausible yeah. deniability. Um, I mean, I don't think there is. I think it's probably pretty safe to say he, he did some really monstrous well, stuff who but knows? Uh, who knows, really? in terms of legal burden of proof but yeah. like we talked about it a little yesterday um just in like planning i actually wonder how this conflict would have gone had nato either been more involved from the beginning in terms of like actual like ground forces or rather had the un taken more of the same approach nato took i've like thought a lot about it just it's weird because I have all these, like, vague memories of, like, learning stuff about this conflict in, like, high school. And uh, we watched this documentary that I've literally never been able to find again. Now I'm really second-guessing whether or not I got the title of it right. But <laughs> um, I think it was called The Day Peacekeeping Died, and it was about Bosnia in particular. Well, it was about the conflict. I think it was actually more about probably Croatia because it was a lot of Canadians, but also Bosnia ultimately. Things like Srebrenica, for instance, had the NATO had NATO been more involved, or had the UN had more peacemaking type attitude um, rules of engagement? Because yeah. Srebrenica probably, while it may have still happened, because at some point you can't stop a force that's so dedicated to the systematic rape and murder of that many people, you can't stop them completely. But it probably would have been a lot less devastating. And I think that that's, like, something that's just, like, constantly in my mind. I can't, like, I just keep thinking about it is how, like, when I even read the mandate of the UN Protection Force in Bosnia, it was to literally to make peace. Like, they were there to keep people alive. So they were there to fight. They weren't there to, like, monitor a ceasefire. Like, they weren't coming into a quote-unquote peaceful situation. They're coming into a conflict. So, like... This is the first time that, like, now you're actually, like, if you really wanted to think about it, like, their mandate was probably to make peace, not to keep peace. There was no peace to keep. So, like, sending them in there without any ability to actually, like, do their jobs is kind of ridiculous. And, I mean, the UN has faced significant criticism over this forever, and they still do, because people are like, what's the... What was the point? Like, literally, what was the point of of sending these people in because they didn't do anything, right? I mean, like, Dutch Bat failed to protect 
a lot of people. And I mean, even in these other places, like other safe zones got attacked. Like NATO managed to help at Grazje. So I don't, I didn't really read too much about that one. So I don't know if it was how terrible it was, but I mean, regardless, like just cause you declared a safe zone doesn't mean that you're, the combatants are going to respect that. Especially when you're dealing again with a really like highly nationalistic and like you're dealing with a very nationalistic conflict. So these people are dedicated to what they're doing. Like they know that they're ethnically cleansing people. They know that they're systematically raping people. They know that they're doing these things and they're intending to do them. So like declaring a safe zone is like, yeah, you have zero credibility in this situation. They don't care about you, UN. They don't respect you. It's the only reason like why, you know, the Croats respected the Canadians after a little while. Cause the Canadians are like, no, we're going to fight back. And the, Serbs eventually sort of respected the French in Sarajevo because the French were like, no, no, like, you can't just take our posts, like, fuck you. So, like, it was only after UN forces were actually allowed to act like the soldiers that they were that their combatants took them seriously. Like, okay, fine, you're going to fight back. Maybe we'll leave you alone. Like, they respected them only when they knew that... Because these people weren't stupid. They knew knew what the UN rules of engagement were. They knew that they probably weren't going to be able to fire back, so... Like, they went into Srebrenica probably knowing that, like, they probably knew, too, that Dutch Bat was, like, under, under qualified, essentially, to, like, under, they didn't have the capacity to protect. Yeah, well, they weren't sure. They weren't entirely sure if. Yeah. If, like, they're, like, well, they knew that there was a possibility that the Dutch would openly just start shooting them and mm-hmm. killing them. But uh, after Dutch Bat caved, mm-hmm. it was just. That was essentially the end Yeah, of... but I think that, like, it was a calculated move to just go directly at Dutch Bat. Well, just, also... like it's, just like it's always been a calculated move, even at Medak, for, like, the Croatians to, like, no, we're going to go at the Canadians until they, like, finally actually capitulate, right? Like, we're going to... They basically want to test the mettle of the UN because they don't believe in the credibility of the UN is essentially what this was, right? Like, they're essentially, like, we can undermine these people because we know that they... Like, I... I wouldn't believe that they didn't know what the UN was there. Like, they didn't know the UN rules of engagement to some extent. Like, you wouldn't know the exact word-for-word, like, rules of engagement. But just based on how this conflict has gone in all of these places, and it's been going on for a long time, like, you're going to observe some things. You're going to know, like, okay, the UN is going to try and stop their forces from doing these things. So, like, if we go right at them... Like, they're not scaring them, I guess, is the thing. They're not really there to... They're not, they're not any kind of deterrent. Like your blue helmets aren't deterring, aren't deterring Mladic and they're not deterring these people. So like they're determined to do what they're going to do and they'll go through you if they have to, because they're determined to do what they're going to do. And so it always just like makes me wonder what would have happened if the mandate or the ability to be more aggressive had changed sooner even. Yeah, I wonder that as well. I think it would have been... And also because... And also whether or not it would ever have changed to be aggressive enough, right? Like, I think that the UN was probably not well-equipped to even be a peacemaking force. Like, they could have been, but I don't think they... Like, I think the Canadians in Croatia, like, they were one of the best armed battalions. Like, Kanbat was one of the best armed battalions in the whole conflict. Like, they were probably the only ones who were reasonably prepared to be a peacemaking force if they had to be. And the French obviously did okay. But, like, I think a lot of the other peacekeepers there were really not prepared to have to deal with... And I think they ultimately... I actually think the UN underestimated the fervor with which 
the uh, other combatants were willing to carry out their goals with. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't want to say Mladic was being calculative. I don't want to give him that much credit. Yeah. Mladic was just a monster with a goal of killing as many people as he could. Mm -hmm. And nothing was going to get in his way. Yeah, but I'm I mean, sure he would have killed those Dutch soldiers. That's what I mean, though. Is like, anything. I think that the UN ultimately underestimated them as well because, like, people like Mladic is like they underestimate the fact that, like, Mladic, even if he's not being that calculating, he's not going to take you seriously. He'll go through you if he has to because he's determined to do what he's got to do. Is really what I was trying to say. Like, okay, he's like he's your your blue helmets aren't deterring someone like Mladic because he's going to do what he's going to do regardless of whether or not you there. They're there. If you shoot at him, he'll just shoot you too. Like he'll he'll go through you if he has to. So like having these like passive rules of engagement based on going into a situation where a peace arrangement's already been made is really not going to work in a situation that they were in in Bosnia. And like I think that NATO was much better equipped to do peacemaking things. Oh, absolutely. I um, mean, why do you think they sent in NATO to? Afghanistan. Yeah, and that's also... Well, yeah, because um, actually this documentary kind of... That I still, again, I'm not super clear on the name of. Um, <laughs> I just remember bits and pieces of it. It stuck with me and I really wish I could find it again. Uh, they kind of compared a little bit like of the force in Af Canadian forces in Afghanistan versus like the situation in Yugoslavia and how like Afghanistan was a peacemaking situation, not a peacekeeping situation because really after Bosnia, Canada pretty much backed out of every other peacekeeping mission like after that for a long time because Canada was like this is kind of pointless like mm -hmm. this we really didn't do anything good John if you're listening we know there are exceptions yeah my friend John was in stationed in Cyprus and in the Congo yeah I just, mean there were there were know. peacekeeping missions obviously but like the scale to which Canada participated in peacekeeping missions drastically declined because Canada used to be one of the biggest participants in peacekeeping missions. And then pretty much after Yugoslavia, that really decreased. And we were like one of the least active UN members. I can't blame them. No, I mean, I think that there was a big wake-up call for a lot of countries. Like, Canada was the only one, I'm sure. The French probably realized pretty quickly, too. Like, And even the Dutch, right? Like, mm -hmm. realized the... Well, they haven't really, Dutch haven't really been involved in any no. since. No. I think the French have, but. Oh, the French definitely have. Yeah. Dutch, I don't think they've been, I, I, they the probably the have. Can, the Canadians certainly haven't to any large scale either. No, not to that extent. Uh, um, but they do still send people like, to. I think I looked missions. at a list one time and there was like, yeah, for Canadian peacekeeping missions. Like, if we send people to a mission, we'll send like. A handful essentially we're not sending like huge battalions and like huge amounts of people even if we do commit to a mission we're sending like handfuls of of uh people yeah it's true which i think is like the situation in mali now is the biggest peacekeeping mission we're that we've been involved in since bosnia i believe i think so yeah but i don't know it's really interesting to think about how this would have gone if and i mean it's a really like worn out narrative too it's kind of the main commentary for the conflict but. well just this whole thing's been dragged on for so long i mean well it's not even over really when no you think it's about not because the fact that there's so much tension in bosnia still well like, mladic was only just finally convicted last year of mm -hmm. his charges and Milosevic given a life died before he was ever given a sentence yeah and 
Karazic, I believe, is still on trial. Yeah. That's the ridiculous thing about this, everyone. The trials are still going. I mean, like I said, Mladic's trial just concluded last year, and he was convicted, and he's now serving life in prison. He's never going to get out. Yep. But, I mean, these guys have been in captivity since they were caught, but, like, regardless. Yeah. Like, it's not like they've gone on living their lives the whole time, but it's still, like, justice for the people that were, like, murdered, raped, etc. in this conflict is, like, it's slow. It's slow, and, yeah. And part of, like, people have asked, asked me why is are these people still on trial. And part of the reason is because they're being charged with so many different crimes. Yeah. And they have to go through every single one. I mean, it's not like if you're charged with like, I don't know, 6,000 counts of murder. They're not going through yeah. every single count. It's like these people are, they're charged with crimes against humanity, com um, committing genocide, associative to committing genocide. They're being charged genocide. with really big lofty crimes that are hard to like wrap your head around a little bit because it means the scale was so large that you can't wrap your head around it. Yeah, but you have to go through every like single every single one. Like yeah. it's all one trial, but like say for this period you're doing this and then you're doing this and then you're doing this and then you're doing And just this. like the huge amount of evidence that needed to be collective, collected, sorted, dealt with. Witnesses. Witnesses. Testifying. Um, there are thousands of witnesses. I mean, Mladic's trial has been on since like... The, probably the early 2000s and it just ended yeah a lot of these trials are huge Karadzic I think still also trial, probably I, I don't know how much of an impact this has actually had but I have a sneaking suspicion that the fact that the US isn't even part of this has probably not helped because <laughs> they haven't yeah. they haven't ratified the ICC so like I don't know if that made a difference but like resource wise maybe it would have like it's possible yes but I think mostly at it's the end because... of the day it's just legal process takes time yeah it's because of the amount so in, in, uh, just in short, it's because of the amount of charges these people have, like they're in the hundreds. And also because of just, they need to look through all of the evidence, all of the witness testimonies. Lots of cases find the evidence because a lot of things were burned, a lot of mass graves, like it's a lot of, like those mass graves need to be dug up. Like Yeah, they're still digging up mass graves and trying to identify people and they're never gonna identify these people. No. It's that's how horrific it still is today. There's still people in Bosnia digging up mass graves. Yeah. Like ugh, it's so horrific. Well to end on the saddest of sad notes, I'm gonna go through the death tolls. People from Her the Herzeg Bosnia section, so the Croatian side, 6,000 soldiers, 2,484 civilians. From Srpska and Serbia, 21,173 soldiers, 4,179 civilians. Other ethnicities, 5,100 civilians. And on the Bosnian side, 30,521 soldiers and 31,583 civilians. All of these death toll records are from the Research and Documentation Center of Sarajevo. To me, these guys are probably the most accurate. There are other figures, some saying it's a little bit higher. So in total, 101,040 dead. The deadliest year was 1992, where a total of 44,200 people died. With UN Prefer, UN Prefer lost 213 personnel. 
The highest toll was, were from France with 48 dead. And since we're Canadian, the Canadian dead was 11. I wonder, do you know if um, the Red Cross kept any numbers on death tolls? I didn't. I, I think they did. Because I know that like in some of the African conflicts, and I really want to say Rwanda now, but I definitely could be wrong. The Red Cross actually managed to keep the most accurate account of death toll because they saw the most number of wounded bodies. They just had this leader of the this this one leader of the Red Cross like Romeo. I think it was. I really want to say it was Rwanda, but I'm obviously could be wrong because I think Romeo Dallaire talked about him and how like this this Red Cross leader was a big reason why the international community finally intervened a little bit, but. He um, was really adamant about keeping track of, because he knew that this was genocide, like he was, there's very few situations where people during a historical event are really like cognitive of like the larger implications of that event as it's happening. And this particular guy, who I can't remember his name, this leader of the Red Cross was like one of those people. So it just made me think, I was wondering what the Red Cross, like if they had. Uh, if they do have records, I don't know what they are the only records i found were from this and from the international court and i would probably trust those like equally yeah. as much anyways the I international have... court said over 104,000 people died yeah uh and then this one said 101,000. so but these are the guys that are actively documenting the mass graves that are still being dug up yeah and everything. i think that number is going to keep changing obviously oh god yeah but yeah this is like the number as of like 2017 i think i don't know but yeah so, yeah, that's that's Bosnia, and I'm going to say it's probably safe to say that even though I usually ask, what did we learn, Lindsay? I don't think we learned a fucking thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I learned a lot of horrible shit that happened, just, or, you know, you confirmed it in my mind. Well, we learned about what happened, but yeah. as a moral lesson... Oh, yeah, I don't think we learned anything. No. It's, I mean... Look at Syria. Look at Darfur. We ignored Darfur. C-A-R, Central African Republic. C-A-R. Congo. Congo. <laughs> I mean, even as Bosnia is happening, Rwanda. <laughs> Pretty much, like, yeah. Literally the same timeline. Yeah, the same year. I mean, we'll get into why Rwanda was... Different. Like, why it was ignored. I mean... Part, yeah, I like, think too, we'll, we'll get into it. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to get into it. I mean, I think this news cycle. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, I yeah. Know, I mean, I imagine we'll do Rwanda eventually. Of course we will. We're not going to do it. We're going to take a break from We're, the genocide, though, because it's a lot for us and a lot for you. Yeah. Yeah, just Bosnia was so traumatic. I don't know. I would personally like to not cry myself to sleep for the next, like, month or two. Yeah, it would be great. So. Um... Yeah, just seeing so many horrific accounts, like eyewitness accounts and photos. It's just so much, even just looking at photos and hearing people. And it's so crazy, too, like, having done these, I mean, we're not done yet, so I won't get too reflecty, but, like, just, like, I know so many people, and I really want to go to Croatia because it's beautiful, like... It's a really popular vacation spot in Europe now, so I've had a lot of my friends go there and, like, it just looks gorgeous. And then, like, but doing this research, you're thinking about, like, in my head, there's just this dichotomy of, like, beautiful beaches and lovely 
Balkan paradise, and then on this other side of my brain, it's like carnage and a lot of dead people. Yeah, <laughs> like, but you, the thing is, you got to separate those two. Oh, from absolutely. Your mind. Oh no, I mean, it's not like I'm gonna snot go there ever. It's just because obviously, like, their economy could probably use those tourist dollars too. But just like, it's just weird to think about. Like, not that long ago, this really nice place was really not that nice. Like, yeah, it's more just the recentness of the all of this too, right? And how like. It's not like other conflicts where we're starting to see the last Holocaust survivors die and things like that. This is like, this was not that old. Like, it's a, it's like, what, 25, 26 years old of a conflict? Like, it's not that long ago that this happened. So there's a lot of people who survived that conflict that are still alive. Probably most of them. There are people, like children who were born during the conflict and then died before it ended. Yeah. But That's, also people who were born during it who were still alive and how that completely shaped how their, their lives would have gone, right? Absolutely. Their formative years would have been completely shaped by the fact that they were born. Even if they were born at the tail end of that conflict, they're going to grow up during, like, reconstruction and horrible, yeah, like, nightmarish it's situations that just, way. Like, well, because we, like, do our research today and really Bosnia's, I mean, to an extent Macedonia as well, ironically, even though they left peacefully, Macedonia has some issues uh, politically, not just the issues with Greece, but internally. Mm -hmm. Um, but Bosnia's like Croatia has been able to heal. Slovenia has been able to heal Serbia, Serbia a bit. Well, I mean, they had their own thing, yeah. uh, which we'll get into next episode, but Bosnia just not has, it still hasn't healed. And I think like, again, like just kind of coming back to the, the, the peace agreement that ended it all. Like, I think that that actually has been a hindrance to the healing, like, Absolutely. Like, I mean, it stopped the conflict, but it, I don't think it... It didn't solve anything. It, All wasn't, it, replaced, was it wasn't replaced with anything that could help heal. Yeah, I so, mean... Like, again, like the analogy, it's like it's a Band-Aid, but you're still bleeding. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> today, the... No. I mean, recently, Bosnia had their... Uh, they had their elections. And the way elections work in Bosnia is... Do we know? <laughs> I do. Okay. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I look, kind of looked through this, but I mean... Their Senate, or their Upper House Senate, uh, it's not called the Senate, but their Upper House is, um, there are seats for, there are like five seats for Bosniak mem uh, members, five seats for Serbian members, and five for Croatian members. And of course, they're pretty much all of those, except for the Croatians, are filled up by nationalist parties. Yeah. So. The Croatians actually are more on the side of, civic nationalism which means that they're not ethnically nationalists they're yeah. they want they they don't necessarily see themselves as croatian they see themselves as bosnian mm -hmm. and for and also the thing in uh which i think actually goes a little bit into like how they gave up a lot of territory during the dayton agreements which to me seems like they were probably like yeah <laughs> we'd rather yeah. have this end than like you know be stubborn about the amount of territory we have right? pretty much and i mean they um, I mean, the, the Croatians joined, sir. Well, the Croatians, they are part, they, they don't have their own territory. They're happily within the Federation. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, they're happily within that, uh, the autonomous area of the Federation of Bosnia with the Bosniaks. Yeah. I feel like they're as happy as anybody can be in Bosnia. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, um, for example, but the other thing is that, uh, Bosnia has three presidents. They have a, a Bosniak president. A Serbian president and a Croat president. So that's you, not confusing. Yeah, and you have to be from those specific ethnic groups to be, Jesus. like, to be voted. But what's interesting is, of course, the uh, 
What's interesting is the president, the current, current and uh, outgoing Bosniak president is Izbekovic's son. He's he just got recently. Uh, someone else was elected. I th I think he couldn't run for re-election or something like that. And then there's and so he's part of this party that's kind of they're conservative, sort of Bosniak nationalist. Well, they are Bosniak nationalists. Um, and then the Serbian guy is uh, from the of course the Serbian party. This is a party that literally wants Srpska to break away and be into reintegrated into Serbia. And Which then you can't do easily. Nope, you can't. Uh, but then the Croatian president is this man who is a member of a party that is civic nationalist. And he is, in my opinion, he's the only one who's trying to solve this ethnic divide. And in fact, uh, looking through like the research, a lot of the, a lot of his votes came from Bosniaks. So it's not like only Bosniaks can vote for this guy. Only Bosniaks can, or Serbs can vote for this guy. It's not, it doesn't work that way. You can literally vote for any one of these people. And uh, a lot of the reason why this Croatian guy got in was because he got a lot of uh, votes from Bosniak voters. Or it's alleged. It's not sure, but he's against this whole idea of separate ethnic nationalism and probably a good hope for Bosnia, but who knows? It's going to be a long time before this whole thing is settled. Yeah. I mean, I honestly wonder, too, if it's worth, like... Does the international community just like double down and reopen talks to try and create like more investment in Bosnia to help Bosnia like come together and heal? Like, how do you even go forward from this? Because yeah, like, you gotta really like, I, I'm like, like Dayton, like Dayton is a band aid and they're still bleeding, but like you can't just rip that band aid off. Like, you need to replace it with something. But how do you do that? Like, how do you go about it? Like, I think it's okay if the international community kind of like sets up this conference and acts as observers and yeah, mediators. Yeah, like they facilitate it they, rather than like, I mean, I think with Dayton, they forced the issue a little bit because everybody is like sick of slaughter. Yeah. But because we're at least removed from that, being able to facilitate some kind of like, I don't know, kind of coming together, like some kind of replacement, even if it's a slow, like, transition from yeah. the current situ situation but i mean like there's got to be something's got to give because eventually like this is either going to end in a stalemate it's going to remain like this forever and no one's ever going to get over this which is not healthy for the country or anybody or it'll erupt in more violence yeah well what's interesting is we didn't have we didn't mention this during the, the main talk but a lot of uh foreign mujahideen forces came and fought for the army of serbia and huh. so, yeah, a lot of... I'm sure the Russians were pumped about that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the Russians were kind of supporting Serbia, Serbia anyway. Well, yeah, because historic ties. Yeah. And then... But the, what's... But, like, I'll respect Russia for helping everybody come to the table. Yeah, I will, too. Uh, but it's, like, what's interesting is, like, about Bosnia is, like, even though these foreign, like, these were, like, these foreign Islamic fundamentalists and even... Uh, Bosniak fundamental, like Islamic fundamentalist. Uh, the thing is, is like the reason why the, a lot of these people turn them fundamentalism is the same reason why anyone turns to fundamentalism is because they're seeing that the, oh, their moderation is not working and they're still killing us on mass. Mm -hmm. So they turn to this fundamental group. 
Um, but the thing is, it's like, unlike places like in Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan or what have you, fundamentalist Islam never took root in Bosnia. Bosnia. And it's because while these are like, they, they are Muslims, like, mm -hmm. like a majority, majority of people in Bosnia are Muslim. Mm -hmm. Um, and while they are Muslim, they, their culture is super, super, super different from like people in Syria and yeah. like the other, like the places we usually associate with Islam. Mm -hmm. It's like in an interesting spot too, because obviously it is Muslim, but I think that it's still influenced a lot by like decades of soviet stuff communism and like just general there's like much more european influence on bosnia that's not colonialism like like bosnia wasn't like a colonized muslim nation like most of the ones that we think of is of fundamentalism yeah from, right? exactly like there was no colonization of bosnia it's different and i think like i mean obviously i'm What's I'm not, really? and I'm not necessarily saying that European influence is good because I, I don't want to like sound like a Eurocentric person here because I'm not, but it's like the European influence on Bosnia is significantly different because ultimately it's a European nation and it wasn't colonized like the Middle East. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was less meddling. The way it is, it's like religiously they're yeah. Muslim, but, uh, culturally they're Balkan. Yeah. They, they, it's, that, that's just how, Yeah. and it's. Again, it's one of those things where Bosnian uh, culture is it's unique to Croatian culture, the same way like Croatian culture is unique to Serbian culture yeah. and stuff like that. It's just you. It's just its own unique thing. Yeah. They do stuff that's like nothing to do with like is Islamic no. stuff all the time. Like traditional weddings are usually different. Apparently, they still drink. They still drink. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it never really, it never took hold in, in yeah. Bosnia. I mean, there, there's elements of Islamic democracy there, but it, they kind of, the, the main Bosnian, Bosniak party dropped that recently because Probably they kind of want to secularize a little bit. productive, I'm sure. Huh? Probably wasn't productive. I think it also has to do with the way it's being perceived around the world now. I mean, Islamic democracy isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just happens. Have it just a bad so happens. Perception. Well, it just so, and also just so happens that the country that a, a lot of the countries implementing it are shit. Yeah, yeah. they're not helped by <laughs> no having just Islam having a bad reputation. Yeah. I'm curious to see though over time, like how even just things like the internet will change the situation in places like Bosnia, and like the fact that people. I don't know, I'm trying to, I don't know how to frame this exactly, but I'm curious to see how like globalization starts to even just naturally maybe heal some of the process. And like, I wonder if amongst like young people, like you see this in Northern Ireland, right? Like there's a lot less interest from younger people in maintaining traditional lines of, you know, battle lines because it's like, for a lot of people, it's like, is this really worth it? Like, I think there's just become curious to see if there is. I don't really know. Um, so, hey, anybody in Bosnia, if you're listening, let us know. I know um, we did have some get one downloads. We had like a, one download in Bosnia, one in, or a couple in Croatia and a couple in Serbia. I mean, like, we'd actually like your feedback, yeah. even if you rip us apart. I mean, it's Ser cool. I mean we're not against Serbians. We were against no. Milosevic and his cronies, obviously. Yeah. 
And I know that there's like in Serbia, there's still a lot of controversy surrounding this whole conflict. But I'm sure that's again pretty recent, though. Like, yeah, I mean, that's neither here nor there. We're not yeah. here to pass. But I, I, I am just people. curious, generally, how like youth movements will change that. I mean, that's assuming that the youth movements go in that direction, because there's lots of instances where youth movements go in very fascist ways too. So. Well, as you as you find <laughs> out in next episode, which is the conclusion of this four-part series you'll see how those kind of groups brought change to serbia itself Mm -hmm. and this is something that nobody ever talks like i don't hear people talk about it at all like when it comes to yugoslavia everyone outside of sir at least outside of serbia yeah but i mean (laughs) it's like it's very interesting topic but like basically our general knowledge of yugoslavia kind of ends with kosovo So we will be talking about Kosovo next week and also this final final stage and you'll see, you'll hear what happens. We'll talk a bit more about the trials and then general wrap up of the, uh, yeah, exactly. Before that though, what you're probably going to get is we're having a special episode. I'm going to announce it today. We're having a special episode on November 11th this year. It is the 100th anniversary of the armistice of the First World War. We are going to have not a traditional Panastory episode. It's just going to be Lindsay and I having a brief, probably around 20 minutes, half an hour discussion about our thoughts surrounding this, like World War Two or World War One as a whole, like what Remembrance um, Day means to us. Armistice. The armistice. It's just going to be very brief. So we will be doing an individual episode on like a full episode on the armistice eventually. Uh, It's just that I want to get, we want to get this out in time. And also, frankly, right after finishing something like Yugoslavia, neither of us are particularly equipped or just we're pretty mentally drained and we don't really want to dive right into a massive thing on World War One right now. We want to be able to give ourselves the time to do it and do it justice. Because it's a it's a big thing. It's going to be yeah. multiple parts, just like this was. So oh god, yeah. It's not like we really don't want to do that immediately either, even for your sake. We love you guys. We do love you guys. You guys have been great. And we don't want to like damage your mental health by giving you all the dark stuff. <laughs> yeah. So look forward to that. That's I'm one. I'm hoping this it comes out on November 11th. And for those of you, for our uh, listeners abroad, November 11th is Remembrance Day. So it's commemorating all of the soldiers who passed away, like died during uh, conflict. And it is celebrated in most of the Commonwealth countries. And so it's, it's to me, it's something, I, and to Lindsay as well, it's something really close to our hearts. We have relatives who are veterans and we want to honor them. I wear, we wear the red poppy every year. And so we're going to, anyway, that's going to be brief, again, brief 20 minute discussion, 20 minute, 30 minutes, just really quick, special, an extra episode for you guys. Cause you guys are awesome. It's true. And you could be more awesome by subscribing, but that's neither here nor there. Subscribing. Yeah, please do that. Uh, once again, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Once I, as I said, after Kosovo, is released. We're going to be going on uh, season, the break for the season. That's going to be the end of season one, and we'll be back for season two, probably probably, probably the end of January. But for the meantime, in the meantime, uh, Lindsay's going to be very fucking busy with her 
soap making products. Just to remind you, yeah, Lindsay makes soap. It's pretty dope. <laughs> so go so, check her out. Her yeah. link is on her Instagram, I think. Yeah. So go check her out. She'll be at a bunch of markets throughout the November. Yeah. You okay with me announcing? Sure. Your, okay. Yeah, she's going to be at markets selling soap. So if you need something to give people for Christmas. Also, I ship to the U.S. now. So American listeners, get on that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> she sells all kinds of soap. It's awesome. And like also, yeah, the money will help us survive. Like will help me anyway survive yeah. and be able to keep doing I'm not, this. I'm not taking any of her soap money. I'm just giving say, her a shout out. I'm definitely I'm not, not taking any of it, I promise. Uh, um. <laughs> the other thing I'm... I'm mostly going to take the reins on this because just because of how busy Lindsay's going to be, I'm going to be doing, uh, I'm going to be working on getting sponsors for the podcast so we can make a profit and get more equipment. And like reminder, we want to make a profit, not just to line our pockets. I mean, eventually that'd be all right, but mostly we, we want to just improve the podcast and be able to keep doing this because it's a lot of fun, but it's, it's a bit time consuming and we can't really afford to like just dole stuff out of our own personal pockets for it so our eventual end goal is to actually make this hopefully a full-time job it might not happen except we accept that but it would be nice if this would be because this is just so much fun yeah it's i mean it's our passion right it's a way to use our educations and not necessarily like actually i don't know it's nice to be able to provide educational information for people especially with all of the weird shit happening on the internet and in life these days it's kind yeah. of nice to have historic friendly friendly reminders of historical events <laughs> well with that we've been we've been here a while, a while. Yeah. so anyway that's going to happen we're going to come back for season two there's going to be another poll probably in january to see what 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 you guys want to hear and if you choose the romans we're not doing it just kidding we're gonna have to we'll do it eventually we'll do it way. um please don't choose the romans so with that uh, thank you guys so much. We'll see you back on November 11th, hopefully. I'll like I'll keep you guys posted. November 11th, special episode, and then Kosovo probably around the end of the month. And then, yeah. So I uh, hope you guys had a good Halloween, and I hope you guys are doing well. Mm -hmm. This is Jonah signing off. And Lindsay. Thank you guys. Oh, one, one. Sorry, one more quick thing. Uh, I'm. We're gonna leave you with uh, the Cranberries rendition of Bosnia. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Okay, bye. <laughs>